With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no, you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Tactics, right here where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for joining us on the program this evening. However you are watching us, we appreciate it. Whether you're watching us on Rumble or you're watching us live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, any of those venues, we appreciate it. If you happen to be watching us on Facebook or YouTube, be sure to like and subscribe to the channel or like the page. That helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords that would like to see conservative voices like the ones on this show go by the wayside. And so if you do want to help us out there, we certainly appreciate it. Real quick before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, because we do have a big show coming up. We've got some news in the gubernatorial race for the state of Alabama. Meemaw K is showing a really strong standing. We've got the ACLU trying to get involved with Alabama schools and have them teach uh, critical race theory. We've got interviews with Mitt Walker, who is one of the representatives for Alabama Farmers Federation. We've got interviews with state FFA officers from the Alabama FFA Association. We've got stuff going on with the, the White House. We have Josh Moon political with Alabama political reporters. So we got a ton, a ton of stories, lots of ground to cover. But before we get into any of that, there was one thing that I wanted to let you guys know about just so you uh, are prepared for this. I'm actually not going to be on the air for the next two weeks. I have seminar style classes, which are all day. So basically I'll have zero time to do any prep. And so I could come on the air, but Frankly, the show would kind of suck because I would have no time to do any preparation. So for the next couple of weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to have absolutely no show for the next two weeks. I know you're sad, you're weeping, you're crying into your computer right now. And I understand it's it's a traumatic experience to go a couple weeks without hearing my smooth voice. But <laughs> Kidding. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll be back in a couple weeks and, uh, we will be here bringing you all the latest local news. There's lots of, uh, things to cover when that happens, I'm, I'm sure, but let's go ahead and focus on the news tonight. Focus on the news in the state of Alabama right now. The latest news is that Meemaw is like super popular, which I don't even know technically constitutes news. This is something that we've known for a long time for on, on several different public opinion polls, Governor Kay Ivey. The governor of our great state has actually been polling very well. She's had the highest approval rating of any governor anywhere in the country on multiple occasions, which frankly just dumbfounds me, but somehow that is a reality. And this latest headline from Yellowhammer News, the, the little excerpt that we're going to look at here, uh, gives you the data on that. So Yellowhammer News reporting, she has an 80% or higher favorability rating in every region and media market. In addition, her favorability exceeds 80% among men and women and among voters of all age groups. Republican primary voters who identify themselves as, quote, extremely conservative, give Ivy a 83% favorability rating. 
and she receives an 86% favorable rating among Donald Trump supporters. So basically what they're saying there is any way you slice it, Governor Ivey is super popular, especially among Republicans. Now, again, this is something that baffles me. I don't really understand. And I don't say this as somebody that absolutely hates the job that Kay Ivey is doing. I'm not saying that she's a terrible governor or anything like that. I'm just saying for a state that is red and conservative, as ours is, it astounds me that we're getting such high favorability ratings for the governor, especially considering everything that went on with the whole mask mandate. I thought that might actually be something that caused a debacle because it did show, ironically, taking the mask off of Kay Ivey, it did show a lot of conservatives that have really not been paying attention to a lot of policy issues that maybe Governor Ivey is more of a follower and, and she may pay lip service to small government principles and conservatism, but at the end of the day, she actually governs like an old school Democrat. And apparently nobody else saw that. And by the way, when I say an old school Democrat, I, I mean that in the sense that she is very pro-life. She has the, the ideas of, you know, sort of God-given rights is, is something that she at least pays lip service to, if nothing else. Um, she is more fiscally conservative than like the AOCs of the world who believe we can just print money ad infinitum and continue to prosper based on that. So I guess that's something in her favor. But again, the woman never met a spending bill she didn't like. She never met a tax she didn't like. Think about this. Every single tax that has been proposed under Kay Ivey's tenure, she has signed every spending measure that I'm aware of. Maybe there was one that escaped my notice, but every spending measure that I know of that came across Kay Ivey's desk, there was never even a thought of, maybe I should veto this and, and hopefully be able to save the taxpayers of Alabama some more money. And No, no, that, that's never something that she considers. She's always for spending more money. She's always for taxing you more. And so that's not a real conservative record on some of those fundamental issues. Now, she's been very good on some of the other issues. She's been fantastic for the Second Amendment. She's been good for the most important issue, which is the issue of life. And so that's great, but let's also not kid ourselves. Having a Republican that doesn't want you to be able to slaughter innocent children in the womb, that's setting the bar pretty darn low. I mean, I'm glad she clears it. That is a point in her favor. But at the same time, that's not exactly something something to write home about. That's something that should be the starting point, not an accomplishment for a Republican politician. And so based on all of this information, and again, I'm not trying to say that Governor Ivey is a horrible governor. I'm just saying that she's not a super conservative figure. She's not a Ron DeSantis. She's not a Christy Nome. You know, She's just not. She's she's not somebody that is a leader on these things when it came to everything with the coronavirus. She was always leading from behind. She's not a leader. She waited and see, to see, okay, what's what's Governor Abbott going to do over in Texas? What is uh, Brian Kemp going to do in Georgia? Okay, once they've done that, about a month after they've done it, we'll do it too. Like She's very, very cautious, very, very guarded. She is not a leader, not somebody that is going to stick up for conservative principles on a regular basis. But Looking at that polling data, you can see why I said a couple weeks ago, despite all of that being true, this is why KIV is going to win. I do not foresee, even though we have heard news recently of Jim Ziegler, the current state auditor for the state of Alabama running for the governor's race. By the way, if you didn't know that, that is something that he announced just a little bit ago. So Governor uh, 
Governor Ivey does actually have a primary contestant in Jim Ziegler. But I don't even think somebody as popular as Jim Ziegler, frankly, has a chance against Kay Ivey. Her favorability rating is just way too high, especially among her constituents. This is a poll that it was specifically taken for Republicans and likely primary voters. And I just don't see anybody with numbers that big having a serious primary opponent. I, I love Jim Ziegler. I think he'd be a better governor than Kay Ivey for sure. But despite that, I just don't think that anybody right now would be able to beat Kay Ivey. It would be nothing short of a miracle or they'd have to catch Governor Ivey in some kind of scandal for that to be true. But I do think what this is an indication of is that the people that label themselves extremely conservative in this state are doing one of two things. They're either completely sleepwalking through all of politics. In other words, they just kind of are on autopilot and anybody that has an R behind their name and they recognize the name, that's where they're putting the check mark on their ballot. And you know what? That's a lot of people in Alabama. It's a lot of people in Alabama. I don't know exactly what percentage it is, but it is very easy to win a political race off of those people in Alabama. That constitutes more than a majority of our voting base, people that just well, I recognize their name and they're a Republican. Click, there you go. That's how they vote. They have no idea any of the policies, any of the issues that these different uh, people in the primaries have. It's just, well, I recognize that name. There we go. And I hate to say it, but it's the truth. And then there's the second option. The second option is not the person that is asleep, but it's the person that may or may not be asleep. They may be sleepwalking through it, but that's not a requirement. I'm talking about on the second option, the people that just really aren't nearly as conservative as they claim they are. And I'm talking about the people that, for example, are super conservative and laissez-faire and I want free markets and let's keep the government out of our business. Well, I mean, unless they're going to like tax Amazon or tax online businesses, yeah, that's fine. Or, or they're going to increase taxes here. But yeah, we, we need that for roads and bridges. Or oh, there's a spending measure and look, there's all these things in here that help out businesses. And so they're really more of a, a chamber of commerce Republican than they are an extreme conservative. Being pro-life does not make you an extreme conservative. It's good. It's a good thing. Believing that we should not be confiscating AR-15s from every citizen that has one. Also a good thing, not making you an extreme conservative. That puts you to the center right, maybe slightly more right than John Kasich. Congratulations. That's about where you are. And so a lot of these people that refer to themselves as extreme conservatives, they're not actually extreme conservatives. They're not even really moderate conservatives. They're centrists that happen to be slightly more to the right than they are to the left. And that's the way most voters are. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're listening to my show right now, that's probably not you. And I'm not saying that to pat you on the back. It's just, if you are spending your time, you are taking time out of your day where you could be watching baseball or something right now, and you are instead taking time to listen to a show that discusses in-depth issues about politics, you're probably not the person that is just going into the ballot completely blind and checking off whatever name you recognize. But that's the majority, guys. Maybe 5%, maybe 5%, and I think that's being generous of the state of Alabama actually listens to some kind of local news outlet, be it newspaper, TV, radio, something, or an internet show like us. 
maybe 5%. And I think that's way overestimating it, to be honest. There are informed people out there that are really conservative, but a lot of people, I think actually because we are such a red state, and remember, red state does not mean conservative state. Red state means Republican state. I think because we are such a red state, there are an awful lot of voters that just kind of let themselves off the hook and they just put everything on autopilot. Now, it's Alabama. We're not going to see all these crazy things, which, by the way, our, our very next story is about how uh, we're, we have the potential of having critical race theory being in the classrooms. Yes, that happens in the state of Alabama. In the state of Alabama, we have 13 abortion clinics. No, I think it's 11 abortion clinics. My bad. I'll, I'll correct that. Uh, but we act as though things that do not, things that are in opposition to a traditional conservative ideology just doesn't happen in the state of Alabama. I've got news for you guys. It does. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that you are probably the person that actually does pay attention to politics, that actually does try to study up on the issues before you vote or engage in any kind of activism, that kind of thing. But the vast majority of the public simply doesn't. And I don't really know how to reach those people because those are the people that either have no idea what they're doing when they go into the ballot box or they get their information on how they're going to vote from the worst possible place which are political campaign ads. It's probably one of those two. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that is the way that it is. But ultimately what this boils down to is voters usually get exactly what we deserve. Because we have been so incredibly lazy and because we have just kind of allowed the government to go on autopilot, a lot of us, because we as Alabamians believe that our, our values are going to be represented as long as we have a pure uh, Republican supermajority in the House and in the Senate and as the governor and, you know, in this case, because we, we vote on judges, also in the Supreme Court. We just kind of assume that our values are always going to be reflected in whatever random generic Republican we put in office. And that's simply not the case. We've got to do better on this because... As voters, because this is a republic, we tend to get exactly what we deserve. And Kay Ivey, unfortunately, is the governor that Alabama deserves. We had three significantly more conservative candidates all running against her in the primary. They were completely ignored. Kay Ivey won it walking away, didn't even have to go to a runoff, despite being the least conservative person in the pool. And so we got the governor that we deserve. That's the way that it is. And so if we want to get better representation, not only as our governor, but also in the House, also in the Senate, so on and so forth, we've got to be paying more attention to these people and not just vote for them or assume they are conservatives because they happen to have an R behind their name. Now, onto that story that I was telling you about just a second ago. The ACLU apparently is very, very angry with the state school board and has sent them a, a letter in response to a resolution that was submitted to the state school board. So here's the story. We'll go ahead and take a look at this. And, and the headline itself gives you, we're going to dig into the article too, but the headline itself says something pretty profound. So let's go ahead and look at that. From Alabama Political Reporter, Alabama ACLU to state school board oppose ban on critical race theory. Well, that's bizarre. I didn't realize that the ACLU would be against a ban on critical race theory being taught in Alabama public schools 
at the element, elementary to high school level. I, I didn't realize that. Why would they do that? Now, I know that you're probably sitting there at your computer saying, Caleb, you're asking a stupid question. It's because they're for critical race theory. That's not what I'm asking. See, because we've been told by the media over and over and over again, uh, one name that comes to mind, for example, would be Joy Reid, who came out and openly was saying that, no, no, see, th this is just like such a big scam. Nobody's actually paying attention to this. Uh, th this is all just a big right-wing conspiracy to say that critical race theory is being taught in schools. Uh, Joy Reid has been kind of on, on MSNBC. She's been kind of spearheading this, but it's been uh, continuously uh, propagated by Brian Selter at CNN. Uh, we've heard similar sentiments coming from, I think Chris Cuomo did a segment on this a couple nights ago. And so uh, people on all, all different mediums of the left have been coming out to say, you know, this is all just a right-wing conspiracy theory, critical race theory. It's it's only taught in like these super elite prestigious law schools. It's not something that's being taught to school children. When we saw everything that happened in that, uh, that big um, school board meeting in New Jersey, where everything kind of hit the fan and the parents wound up getting arrested for wanting to attend their own child's school's school board meeting, all that happened because of critical race theory. And then everybody on the left immediately dismissed it and said, no, that's not happening. You're worried for nothing. This is just the latest rallying cry of Republicans to try to get people motivated to actually vote for them. Okay, well, if that's true, why does the ACLU care whether or not there's a ban on it? I mean, if it's not happening, what's the problem here? Because, for example, I don't like frivolous laws, but if somebody were going to, say, pass a ban on bringing your pet unicorn to school, I don't know that I would oppose that because, I mean, I guess I'd be against it because it's frivolous, but at the end of the day, do I really care whether you ban something that doesn't exist or not? No, because whether you ban it or not, it can't show up to school anyway, and so what's the difference? See, what you, do, what you really start to understand by looking at this headline is that the truth is the ACLU knows that critical race theory is being taught in schools. They want it taught in schools. And so when somebody proposes a ban on it, they have to say, hold on now. And this has been happening not just in the state of Alabama, but in states all across the country over the past several weeks, because there have been several governors, including... For example, one in Iowa, this just passed uh, about two or three days ago, I believe. Uh, in Iowa, there was a ban on critical race theory being taught in schools. There's one being drafted up. I don't believe it's actually passed yet, but there's one that's being drafted up and is expected to pass very soon in Texas. And so this is happening all over the country, and the leftists are vehemently opposed to it. Well, if it's not being taught in schools anyway, why do you care whether we ban it? If it's not happening, then what's the problem? The thing is, it is happening. They know that it's happening. They know that this thing is being propagated throughout schools all over America. And if it gets banned, they can't teach it anymore. That's the problem. But see, to oppose the ban, they kind of have to show their hand and reveal, okay, yeah, actually it is being taught in schools, but we think it should be taught in schools. And see, the funny thing is the left is yet to agree on the strategy because you have some people on the left 
straight up just saying, no, no, it, it's it's all a figment of your imagination. This is all just a product of right-wing media trying to whip everybody up into a frenzy over absolutely nothing, something that's not happening. That's kind of the Joy Reid approach. But then you also have people on the left that are saying, no, no, it is being taught in schools and should be. And so the left doesn't really have a unified message on that. And I think part of the reason that they don't, because usually the left is very good at, at walking in lockstep. They're very good at having a message ready to go and all of their entities in the media just have it. And they, they basically regurgitate the same talking points over and over again. And I'm not even saying that that's necessarily because they're coordinating. It's just that they've game planned this all out internally. And so they know how this is going to happen. They did not expect this one to hit the fan. They didn't expect people to start catching on to this. And that's why they're talking points. They haven't really decided which lane they're going to pick, whether they should say, no, it should be taught in schools or no, this is all just a right-wing conspiracy and it's not really happening. And so because they haven't figured that out, they haven't made their minds up on that yet. That's why you're seeing some of the confusion and people giving mixed messages here. But the ACLU very clearly stating by their actions, by implication, well, yeah, it is being taught in schools and we don't want you to ban it because we want it to be able to be taught in schools. And there are people that I think are 100% honest and intellectually forthcoming that they don't like these bans. And here is their rationale. I'm going to, to give you their side of the story. I'm not saying this is what I believe. I'm saying this is their argument. So what they're saying is, and these are not necessarily just people on the left. These I think people are uh, these people, I think, are honest brokers when they try to make this case. When it comes to the world of academics, we should not be banning any theory, whether the theory is a good idea or a bad idea. We should not say that there is anything that is off limits or taboo to be taught in schools, as long as it's not something that's like, you know, pornography or something like that. As long as it's something that's age appropriate, that doesn't spoil a child's innocence or something like that. We should be able to teach any theory in school, whether it's correct or incorrect, whether it's controversial or not, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as a very big free speech person, this argument appeals to me. I understand the rationale behind it. I get what they're trying to say. Now, you can't see it because it's off camera here, over here to my right, but my bookshelf is right there. And on that bookshelf, I'm just looking at it. I didn't plan this. I'm just looking at my shelf right now. I have... Mein Kampf, right next to Up From Slavery, the autobiography of Booker T. Washington, which is right next to Sacred Fire, which is a book about George Washington and his life and the Christian influence on his life. So I'm obviously not a person that is opposed to looking at opposing ideas. I have a black man's autobiography about how he got out of slavery sitting right next to the manifesto of Adolf Hitler. I'm obviously not a guy that is against presenting opposing ideas. Here's the problem with that argument, though. The, the issue comes into at what age are you going to teach it and how are you going to teach it? Because one thing that is different about critical race theory than most theories is unlike being a surely academic exercise, it, it has an aspect of it that teaches activism and teaches how you are to behave. And if you don't believe me, all you need to do is read the book literally titled Critical Race Theory, an introduction. The third edition is out right now. You can buy it on Amazon if you want. And in the introduction to the introduction to the book about critical race theory that was written by the people that came up with the theory in the first place, 
they literally say in the introduction that unlike other forms of academic study, critical race theory has an aspect of activism programmed into it. So in other words, if you are somebody that is going to learn critical race theory, it includes basically a blueprint, a guideline for how to become an activist. That's part of the theory. And so that's one of the big problems there, that it is not merely just learning for the sake of learning. It is not information that can just be given to you and then you decide what to do with it. Critical race theory is not that. Critical race theory is here is the information and this is the only way to interpret it. This is the way you should behave. This is the way you should react to it. It's almost evangelical. It's religion-like in that sense. And so that's the first big problem with that argument. Because, you know, I'm all for learning Plato's Republic and, and even reading things like the Communist Manifesto, which, by the way, is another book that's on my shelf right now. I'm, I'm fine with learning those things as long as it's not followed up with and, and this is the way that you should react to it. Here's the problem with that, though. This might even apply to this argument might not even apply to the bans that are being proposed in other states. It does not apply to this ban that we're talking about specifically that the ACLU has a problem with in this state. And if you want to know why, you need look no further than the same article that we were showing you earlier from Alabama Political Reporter. The letter was in response to a resolution the board discussed on June 15th that was drafted by the Alabama Policy Institute and Eagle Forum. By the way, that's Eagle Forum Alabama, the same one that, that Becky is one of the spokespeople for. The conservative interest group founded by Phyllis Chafee in 1972. The resolution prohibits educators from teaching about controversial issues or current events without exploring them from contending perspectives and asserts that they must ensure, quote, freedom of inquiry and instruction and freedom of speech in all associations. Huh. So this ban on critical race theory that is being proposed to the Alabama State School Board now is not even technically a ban on critical race theory. It bans it as long as you do not teach the opposition to it, but it does not ban critical race theory outright. It just says you're allowed to teach critical race theory, but because it is a currently debated and controversial topic, you must also teach the opposition. That's what the ACLU objects to. This is not an all-out ban on critical race theory. I think this is a very well-worded proposal that Equal Forum Alabama and Alabama Policy Institute submitted to them because it actually allows for the possibility of critical race theory to be taught as long as the opposite opinion is also taught and they are presented both as possibilities to be right. This I'm fine with. I've always said, if you want to have, for example, on economics, I'm perfectly fine with students reading the Communist Manifesto. I'm perfectly fine with reading stuff from Heigl or reading stuff from Krugman or reading things uh, for students uh, with uh, kinds. You know, if you want to read those, uh, those economists that genuinely believe that big government can create a stable economy, that's fine. But, you know, also have them read Thomas Sowell and Milton Friedman and Adam Smith. Like, have them read the opposition too. That I'm okay with. But the ACLU has a problem with this ban, even though it's not really a ban, it just bans it being taught in a vacuum. 
it bans it being taught as the only possible solution. So you can teach critical race theory. You would just also have to include something like the 1776 project or something like, I don't know, the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King, which are in direct contradiction to critical race theory. And so you would have to figure out a way to teach the opposite opinion as well. That I'm perfectly all right with. The ACLU is not. They want to be able to indoctrinate your children unopposed. They want to be able to present this series of ideas and this interpretation and have no opposition whatsoever. That's what they're fighting for. Because this doesn't even get rid of critical race theory. It just gets rid of it as being taught as the only possible interpretation of history. And so another thing, this would be genuine, generally applicable to other topics as well, which I think is a good thing. If, if there's competing theories out there, then you should have to teach the other side of that as well. If there's a creation school out there, like let's say, I know that this wouldn't actually apply to a private school, but I'm just saying as a hypothetical to illustrate the point. Let's say it did apply to private schools. Let's say that, that ACA, for example, which is right next to, to campus here at Faulkner where I work. Let's say that they were required and they shouldn't do this, but I'm just saying, you know, again, it's a hypothetical. They say, um, you're allowed to teach creation theory, but you have to also teach evolution. I'm fine with that. I think that's a good thing, actually. I think you should have to learn creationism and learn evolution. Both of those things side by side, and there is scientific data to back up both of those. Won't go into it now, but the point is, I'd be perfectly okay with that. I like the idea of opposing theories, especially controversial ones, being taught to children. But CRT is different because it is built upon this idea that it is supposed to be exclusive and you're supposed to not question things. It actively says, if you are of a certain color of skin, particularly white, then there are certain times where you should just shut up and not ask any questions and not question anything. And it's that same mentality that doesn't like questions, that doesn't want opposition or opposing ideas being presented that the ACLU is following here. They don't like the ban, not because it bans CRT, but it bans CRT being taught exclusively. And that is the difference. They want to be able to indoctrinate your children without any opposition whatsoever. That's what they're actually advocating for. Because if not, they wouldn't be opposed to this ban. All right, so we've got a great show coming up. We're going to do an interview with Mitt Walker of Alabama Farmers Federation talking about a very important topic that affects Alabama farmers and will affect all of us, uh, of course, because we all eat and we all have clothes in the long run as well. And kind of continuing with our agriculture theme, we will also have interviews with Olivia Powers, the Alabama State FFA reporter, and Brianna Payne, the State Alabama FFA Sentinel. So Lots to look forward to. We're going to have all of that coming up in just a second when we come back. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And now for a reading from the Social Justice Warrior Bible with Pastor Gregory Post. Welcome in. I'm Gregory Post, head pastor at the Eternal Living Word Transdenominational Church and Coffee House in Novato, California. 
And now it's time for a reading from the SJW Bible, the only Bible that doesn't have a leather-bound version because leather is murder. Today's reading will come from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 through 24, which states, Then the Lord God took the gender-neutral person and put Z in the Garden of Eden to enjoy it and post a lot of pics on social media for him to enjoy. The Lord God commanded the gender-neutral person, saying, From any organically sourced, GMO-free tree of the garden you may freely eat, even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from it, you will certainly die, but I'm not here to judge or to tell you how to live your life. You do you. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for Adam to be alone. I will make Z another person, exactly the same as Zir, so that they will be equal in every way. And out of the ground the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky over billions of years through theistic evolution, and brought them to the gender-neutral person to see what Z would call them. And whatever Adam called a living creature, that was its name, unless it identified as something else. Because Adam understood that animal lives matter and are equal to ours. The gender-neutral person gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an equal that could totally do everything Z can do. So the Lord God pulled a Bill Cosby and caused a deep sleep to fall on the gender-neutral person, and Z slept. Then God took one of Z's ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, totally proving that God wants all surgeries to be free. And the Lord God fashioned into another gender-neutral person the rib which God had taken from the other gender-neutral person, and brought Z to the other Z. Then Z said, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, not that I am claiming any type of ownership or patriarchal arrangement. Z shall be called gender-neutral person, because Z was taken out of the first gender-neutral person. For this reason, a gender-neutral person shall leave his patriarchal oppressor and his birthing person and be joined to his life partner, and they shall become one flesh, no matter what gender or species or age they are. Wow, so inspiring. This has been another reading from the SJW Bible. And remember, the only truth that matters is your truth. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, we appreciate you being with us on the program, however you're choosing to join us, whether it's Facebook, Zoom, Skype, whatever venue you're watching us on, we certainly appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. And my next guest is Mr. Mitt Walker. He is the Director of National Affairs for the Alabama Farmers Federation, here to talk to us about something that Frankly, I think there has been a, a grave deal of injustice in the fact that we have not been talking about this. This is a really big national story that could affect our lives in, in several significant ways. And the fact that it hasn't gotten more media attention, I think, is, is frankly kind of sad. And so we're going to do our part here at Tactics to shed some light on that. So let's go ahead and welcome in Mr. 
Mitt Walker. Thank you so much for being with uh, with us here, Mr. Walker. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, always a, a pleasure to get to talk to some Farmers Federation folks. Um, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I'm actually a former state officer and an ag comm major. So uh, I have a little background in this stuff. So yep. um, speaking of that, if you would go ahead and give the audience a little bit of background information on you, kind of how you got to be with the Farmers Federation and, and the reason that you're interested uh, in these kinds of you know national affairs. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I had kind of a, a different path to get here. I actually um, went to college at Troy University and uh, studied environmental science there and worked for about six years for the state environmental management department and had an opportunity to move over to Alpha uh, about 16 years ago now. Um, initially worked with a couple of our uh, commodity divisions, catfish, goats, sheep, uh, worked with a leadership program here and about 11 years ago transitioned over to kind of keeping an eye on all things at the federal level. So really any issues that affect farmers, rural Alabama, and uh, really on any given day, there's there's several of those happening in Washington that, that we have to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think people really don't realize and, and understand just because they haven't been taught how pervasive agriculture is, how the, the prices of food affect the prices of everything else, and how much of an impact that agriculture has in their daily lives, both with what you're talking about at the federal level or also at the state level. Um, people don't realize how big agriculture is. And I mean, it's a fifth of our economy. And so it really does span a lot of different industries. Sure. Yeah, we, we like to say around here, if you ate today, then you have a vested interest in agriculture. So uh, it is something that does affect all of us. And it has a huge impact on our state's economy. Agriculture is the largest industry in Alabama, um, somewhere north of $70 billion of economic impact on an annual basis. When you look at, you know, the, the farms, all of the supply industries, the trucking, all of the things that go into moving commodities around, it certainly has a, a large impact on the state. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I would just because I think most people, because they aren't really familiar with agriculture, and like I said, maybe the scope of it, they probably also are not familiar with the estate tax and, and what a big impact it has on that. So before we get into the topic that we're actually going to be discussing today, some of the changes to that, if you could just kind of lay the groundwork for my audience and explain how the estate tax as it exists today is already seriously affecting American farmers. Sure. The state tax, put very simply, is a tax that is imposed when um, land assets and those types of things are transferred from one generation to the next. So, for example, most of our farms in the state, you know, 90% of them or more are family farms. So mm -hmm. when the father, the mother, the grandfather, um, you know, passes away, when those assets are transferred, there is a, a tax levied on that at the time of transfer. Now, thankfully, under current law, um, the, um, let's see, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, I went blank on the, the name of the, the big tax proposal or package yeah, that Trump uh, pushed through early in his tenure, it doubled the exemption levels. So right now, under current law, most of our farmers are in pretty good shape as far as the exemption levels. For married couples, it's, it's well, it's above $20 million that could be transferred with no taxes. The concern is that is temporary law, and there are a couple of proposals out there now that would bring that exemption level way down. So 
we have a saying here that farmers are land rich and cash poor. And what that really means, Caleb, is most of a farm's assets are tied up in what it takes, you know, for them to make their living. It's land, it's tractors, it's combines. Mm -hmm. um, all of the things that go into to producing a crop or, or raising livestock, it's all tied back to the farm. So when an untimely death occurs, a lot of times there's not cash available to pay that tax bill that's due upon upon death. So leaves farmers facing a very tough proposition. Sometimes it means selling a piece of the family farm. Sometimes it means selling equipment. Sometimes it means selling other things to pay that tax bill, which in turn makes them less productive. They're having mm -hmm. to give up an integral part of, of what they re rely on to produce their crops. Right. I mean, you might actually be able to pay it because you do have a lot of assets, but if you need that asset to be able to produce for yourself and your family, then selling the asset is a non-starter. And so unfortunately, just as the estate tax exists, you know, before we're talking about any of these changes, it's not at all an uncommon story for these estate taxes to hit farm families really hard. Now, corporations don't have that problem. Uh, and so the, you know, we talk a lot about corporate farming and I say that's a bit of a misnomer because even most of our corporate farms are in some way family owned as well. They just happen to be larger. Uh, sure. but, but either way, like you're usually your larger corporations that own several farms, they can handle this kind of thing a lot better than a lot of smaller family farms. And, and when this hits them, it can devastate them and even drive them straight out of business. Yeah. Yeah. You know, farmers, you know, they face so much uncertainty in a, in a, every year. It's weather, it's, you know, it's insects, it's all of these things that are out of their control. Uh, prices, you know, farmers are unfortunately are price takers, not price makers. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to depend on making your living on a whole variety of things that frankly, you really don't have any control over. And it's really unfortunate that the federal government is in a position to bring even more uncertainty into you know, how you manage your farm finances, because there is this uncertainty with what the tax code would look like moving forward. So while we're, we're in fairly good shape now, the, the future is a little, little rocky and that's just more uncertainty that they're having to deal with. Yeah, I believe it was Ronald Reagan that actually said that farmers already have to face uh, weather calamities and insects. They ought not have to fight their government on top of all that. And I mean, I thought that was with sentiment that I could really relate to. Um, yeah. So now that people kind of understand how devastating that can be, the estate tax can be to a family farm, uh, if you would talk about some of the, the new proposals that have been brought up, because I, I know one of them that I wanted to discuss with you was the, the new way that they're going to be assessing and they're talking about passing an appreciation tax. And so yeah. this would apply across the board, but it would really affect farmers. So for example, let's say, um, not that I have one of these, so don't come looking for it, but uh, let's say that I have a, a issue one action comics, the original Superman comic book. Well, that's more valuable now than it was in 2005 or 2010. And so what they're talking about is taxing any appreciation on any assets you have. And so as you can you know, tell from, from that with farming, if you have land that was valued as one thing when you originally bought it or your family originally inherited it versus what it is now, that could have a devastating effect on farmers if they start all of a sudden taxing how much their land or their other property has appreciated in the time since they purchased it. So if you could just kind of talk about what impact that could have on farmers. 
Yeah, that is one that is, is certainly new on the horizon. Um, there's a piece of legislation called the STEP Act um, pending in, in Congress now. And, and it does exactly what you described. So under current law, um, under capital gains taxes, there's a provision called stepped up basis. Uh, so, so what happens, you know, say, say you use a three generation farm as an example. Grandfather buys a piece of property that's valued at a, at a certain, you know, level when he purchased it, say 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. When it transferred to his son or daughter, that property is then assessed at a new basis. The, the basis is, is stepped up is, is the term we use. So from the day you acquire that piece of property, the, the value resets. So as you transfer it to that next generation, they have the opportunity to reset that value. Again, and, and what it really boils down to, I mean, when you look at cropland across the country, um, farmland has tripled in, in value in just a, a, a few short decades. Um, if you're forced to pay, and the other thing is it's under current law, you don't have to pay those taxes at the time of death. That, tr- that property transfers to the next generation. Um, now, if it's sold, then you would pay taxes on it at that time. This mm-hmm. new, new idea that's floating around D.C. now would require taxes be paid at the time of transfer, not at the time that it's actually sold. Um, it could have a devastating impact on farmers. In fact, Texas A&M just released a, a new study. They have what's called representative farms. There are 94 farms all across the country that are real working farms that their um, their professors go and gather the, the real farm data on an annual basis. What are they producing? What did they receive? What were their input costs? And those type, types of things. They ran this this new legislation through their model to see how it would impact the farms. 92 of those 94 farms would pay a significantly higher tax bill. So it is a very far-reaching rule change that would have devastating impacts. Again, you know, you can't predict when someone's going to pass away. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and to, to make business decisions for this crop year, the next crop year, Again, it goes back to what we talked about a while ago. Our farmers need certainty in their tax code to know how to manage their finances so that they can do the best job they can to feed and clothe the world. Well, and it is really sad because, and I don't know where you stand politically, you know, really it doesn't matter when we're talking about an issue this specific, Um, but it just seems as though the Democrats, which always claim to be the party of the little guy and they don't like corporations and they don't like big business getting involved and they actually come out against uh, what we would refer to as corporate farms or factory farms. It seems like this policy, which is being pushed by a lot of them, would actually run a lot of the family farmers out of business and those farms and assets would be bought up by big corporations and then, you know, uh, there would actually be a larger percentage of our farm food fiber resources actually coming from corporate farms. Yeah, that is certainly a concern. You know, one of the things our smaller and even um, medium-sized type family farms, you know, they don't have the resources to to do all this financial planning that that some of the bigger operations might have. Um, you know, the, the whole concept of corporate farms and, 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 and those types of things, it is unfortunate that that term is out there because just like you were describing, I mean, most of our farms in Alabama, even the larger ones, they're family operations. They right. simply get bigger 
to survive. I mean, when you look at going out and buying a cotton picker today, if you buy a new piece of equipment, a cotton picker is going to cost you almost a million dollars new off the lot. Well, you got to roll that cotton picker across quite a few acres to make that, you know, payment. At the end of the right. Year. You ain't making that back in one year. That's for sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, unfortunately, um, and, and it strains some of our farmers to have to get bigger. It's more time. It's more hours. Um, I won't even get into the labor concerns that we're facing right now. Um, you know, finding folks to work on the farm is a, a very difficult task these days. So, yeah, they've had to get bigger, but it's not necessarily always their desire to do so. It's simply a matter of, of staying alive. I mean, you, you've had to get bigger to survive. Yeah, that does happen quite a bit. And one thing that I think could equally have now, this one is not being proposed as legislation. I'm not sure if you have heard of this uh, so far or not. This is really coming more from the think tanks and people that are kind of in the initial planning stages of this. But there have been several people that have been proposing a wealth tax. And so you wouldn't just be taxing appreciation of, of assets that you have, and you wouldn't just be taxing when somebody dies or your income and all that. They're saying, and, and some people are proposing a one-time tax, some people are proposing, you know, maybe once every five years, something like that. But this thing is kind of in the works that they would be taxing just basically your net worth every so often. And if that happened, that could really have a devastating effect on farmers too, because uh, it's kind of like you were saying, they're land rich and farm poor. If you look on paper at all the farmer's assets, they look like a rich person, but their cash flow is actually pretty small and their profit margin is very narrow. And so how could this really affect the farmers, both of Alabama and of the country as a whole? Well, it's unfortunate. I mean, when those types of policies are, are proposed or discussed, you know, my personal opinion is, I mean, you're basically penalizing someone for their success. It, it's the exact opposite of what we learned as kids growing up. You know, the American dream, you go out, you work hard, you invest your earnings, and then you grow your business. And, you know, that's, that's what we should be advocating for. And unfortunately, you know, these concepts of penalizing those that have been successful um, it does real harm um, to those individuals, but it also, if you think about, again, going back to the number of employees that are on these farms, mm -hmm. the, the other businesses that are associated with these farms, when you're taking money out of the, the farmer's pockets, that's less money they're able to reinvest in their rural communities. And, you know, we, we all know what, what a struggle it is for a lot of the rural parts of Alabama to... <clears throat> keep people there. People are leaving rural Alabama. They're going looking for jobs in other places. You know, the farms across the countryside, they're reinvesting their profits every year in those local communities, and it makes a huge impact on that local economy. Well, it, it certainly makes a huge impact on the local economy, but I think right now, especially with some of the things that we're seeing in the prices of beef and other commodities just going up much more than we anticipated in a very short amount of time, I think people are starting to realize that this is something that affects them as well, because if we're going to see all these massive overhead in the form of wealth tax or appreciation tax or estate tax, um, that is going to be reflected in the cost of food and other resources. And as we can kind of see from, from what we've seen that happen already, that affects everything else. I mean, that affects uh, fuel cost. It affects uh, the price of everything, because if you have to pay more to feed a person, then, you know, a business that might have nothing to do with agriculture, you know, let's say that you're uh, uh, involved in healthcare or something like that. Well, if their employees now need more money to be able to eat, 
they have to pay those people more. And so it has a devastating effect on the economy and costs as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, our, our farmers are working day in and day out to provide the safest, most, most affordable food supply they possibly can for, for our country and, and frankly, other people around the world. Um, we do depend on a, a large number of exports as well. Um, but when you look at, you know, the cost of food, the cost of all of those things that go into producing the food, the farmer gets a very, very small percentage of that overall price. So when you see, you know, a ribeye, for example, that's eleven ninety five at the grocery store per pound, you know, the, the farmer's not seeing nearly that. But we do take a lot of pride in the fact, too, that in the United States, you know, we spend a fraction of our income on food um, compared to other parts of the country. You look at developing countries around the world, you know, they may be spending 50, 60 percent of their income just to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, a while ago, I actually did a segment on this and I was comparing America now to America in the 80s. And we looked at several different things, automobiles, housing, that kind of thing. And the amount of, uh, the, as a percentage of the average American's income up until a couple of years ago in all of those categories had been on a very steady decline. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that actually did tick up just a little bit was eating at restaurants. Yeah. And so the only one that actually did go up where agriculture was involved was eating at restaurants. And that's because the food got less expensive and they could afford to do that more often. And so... Uh, th their overall percentage of how much they spend on food actually has been decreasing. And I think that that is uh, largely, if not exclusively, because of the innovation and, and cost-cutting practices of American farmers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the farmers' innovations and then also the research that goes on at our universities around the country. Um, you know, we're fortunate in Alabama to have not one, but three land-grant universities. Um, mm -hmm. Auburn, Tuskegee, and Alabama A&M are all um, their missions focus around agriculture and agricultural research. So when you look at, you know, taking that research and putting it in the hands of the farmer and then it's further, you know, refined and implemented out in the countryside, that is the one thing that I think really sets our farmers above other, other farmers in the rest of the world is that research and the access to the technology that we have in our country. And, and the, the, just the work ethic of the American farmer too plays a big role in that. Oh, absolutely. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about is, and I don't know how much you've studied this, but uh, one thing that is in Joe Biden's America, the beautiful plan, uh, mm -hmm. which really alarmed me, I think this has kind of flown largely under the radar, even in conservative media. Uh, but one provision that is contained in there is that they, their goal is to, according to, to this plan, own 30% of all American land by the year 2030. Now, you know, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out for them to do that. They're going to have to buy an awful lot of private land that is currently owned by citizens. And a lot of that land just, I mean, by sheer math, is going to have to be land that we use for farming. And so uh, do you think the efforts there could, you know, impact farmers in a significant way? Yeah, you know, that, that particular proposal I have looked pretty closely at, and, and there's others out there as well, but the 30 by 30 proposal, um, it's very short on details. Um, right, it's, a, it's very, very general. Yeah, it's very vague. There's not a lot of specifics there. You know, for instance, you know, when you talk about conserving 30% of, of the land in the United States, 
what's the starting point for that? Are we going to say that the na national parks, for example, that are already under federal ownership, do we start there or are we talking about an additional 30 percent? You know, the plan doesn't really talk about any of that. Um, the one thing that, and there's a lot of discussion, I, I'm kind of going on a tangent here a little bit, but there's a lot of discussion around the whole conservation theme in Washington right now. And, and what we're really pushing hard on is to make sure that farmers get credit for what they've already done. There's been conservation practices on farms since farming, you know, became a profession in this country. In more recent years, there's lots of voluntary programs that farmers are eligible to apply for through USDA. We need to take an, an account, we need to take stock of those practices that have already been implemented before we go out and recreate the, the wheel and try to push a whole new set of, of, of rules down on farmers. You know, our message around the whole conservation discussion right now is, you know, first off, it's got to be voluntary. It, it's got to be a, a carrot, not a stick approach. Our, our farmers are going to fight it. They're not going to embrace it. But if it's voluntary and there's some incentives tied to it that makes it worthwhile for the farmers to, to implement these practices, you know, we can have that discussion. But I am very much concerned about where this all may go. Um, you know, the 30 by 30 plan, going back to that, there's a lot of words there. It just doesn't say a whole lot, but we're having to keep a really close eye on, on where the administration is headed with that for sure. Well, and I think that that is part of the reason I found it so alarming is because at least when a law, even if it's a bad law, if you can see it and know exactly what it's going to do, the fact that it eliminates the unknown there it at least allows you to prepare for it. The fact that this is just kind of thrown out there and there's very little definition given as to what conservation means, what it looks like, and whether or not federal ownership of land means that, you know, they're going to take it over and manage it or, or how that would work. But um, you know, just throwing a theory out there, let's say that when they look at farmland, they say, well, it's, it's going to be under federal ownership and federal management, but we'll allow the family farmers that are living on it now to stay there. I think that's going to be a deal breaker for an awful lot of farmers. I mean, most farmers yeah. don't want somebody else to own their land. That, I mean, heck, that would be uh, regressing back into feudalism back in like medieval uh, Europe where the king owned all the land. You were just allowed to live on it. Um, and I don't think that that's what farmers want to go to part of the American dream and, and part of their desire. Cause I mean, nowadays, if you're a farmer, you're a farmer because you want to be a farmer. Like there's not farmers that are there because they, they can't do anything else. That may have been true in the past, but it's not now. And so, uh, if that is the case, I think that a lot of farmers, especially the ones here in Alabama are not going to take too kindly to the idea of, well, the Fed will own the land and, and we'll just allow you to live on it and cultivate it. I, I don't think that that's going to be uh, something that they're in favor of. Yeah, I would agree 100 percent. I mean, that goes against everything that, that our policy would stand on as far as land ownership and, and, and that type of thing. So that's something we would fight very hard. Um, you know, I guess as more specifics come out, come out around the 30 by 30 plan, we'll, we'll know kind of just like you were saying, we'll know what areas to really push back on. But at this point, it's, you know, we're not even sure, you know, what the, the proposal would actually do. Um, again, when you talk about conserving land, is that, um, is that, like you said, is that, is that federal government actually owning the property or is it the federal government saying that we're going to incentivize farmers to implement certain practices and we'll check that box and say, hey, we've got a thousand acres that are you know, planted in, in native grasses or whatever else. 
who knows? There's just not any specifics there. Um, there was a bill that passed last week in the Senate that does put USDA on the track of um, setting up kind of some guidelines for carbon credits. So farmers uh, that are interested in, in, in taking on, um, you know, different practices where you would be able to sell that credit to another industry that needed to offset credits. There is at least some guidelines being set in place there. I'm not sure how popular it will be in our part of the world, but uh, again, if it's voluntary, if it's incentive-based, if it's, uh, you know, the free market comes in and decides to get involved with that, I think we're certainly okay with that. There could be some potential in the Southeast, frankly, with the forest land that we have here. Trees sequester a whole lot of carbon. So, you know, depending on who's doing the math and, and how those credits are are allowed for, you know, there could be some opportunities there, but again, we're going to be very, very skeptical moving forward and make sure that that there's um, not something that's going to be punitive toward our producers. Well, you know, I think, and I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, uh, I think the spirit of trying to say that we're going to be conserving 30% of the land and, and make sure that it's taken care of, uh, I think that that is a somewhat misguided, if well-intended, outgrowth of this sort of belief of, of some people on the left, typically your environmental types, that kind of thing, that think that farmers come through and when they take care of a land or they cultivate the land, that they're actually doing some kind of harm to it. And they want to like maybe manage the practices when it comes to things like fertilizer, pesticide, that sort of thing. Uh, the problem with that is, and this is what I've said for a long time, people that, that claim that, you know, the, the vast majority of American farmers are mismanaging their land and abusing their animals or, or whatever. As I've said from the very beginning, is like you do realize that's their asset, right? I mean, that would be like a used car salesman going out to his used car lot with a baseball bat and just hitting all of his cars with it. Like it doesn't make any sense for them to abuse the land or abuse their livestock because that's how they make their money. And so I think that, you know, there there's some good intention there with the desire to make sure that land is taken care of, but Nobody cares more about this land or more about their animals than the farmers that are actually managing them, if nothing else, just because it's in their interest to take care of them. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a financial interest there, um, you know, to protect what they, they use to make their livelihood. You know, and the other thing I would say, too, I mean, there's a deep, deep, profound respect and love for the land that they're able to, to enjoy making a living on. Um, you know, you talked about farmers that, you know, farmers want to farm. I think in some ways being a farmer is a little bit like being a preacher in that you've got to be called to do that. You know, farming is not for the, the faint of heart. It is not for, um, you know, it, it's not an easy profession. And uh, when when you look at growing up, you know, particularly our family farms where they're three, four or five generations deep, you know, that, that's your community. I mean, that's that's part of who you are. And you absolutely want to do everything you can to protect that resource and, and you know, improve upon it. Our farmers take a great deal of pride in, in having their property be attractive. You know, they, they work hard. It's, it's, a, it's a point of pride. So, yeah, it's absolutely in their economic interest to do so. But I think it goes a lot deeper than just economics. It is... Um, it is something that's very near and dear to their heart. And, and, you know, 
they're the hands-on, they're the real conservationists. I mean, when you want to talk about environmentalists and who's doing the work, they're doing the work every day. They're touching mm -hmm. that resource. They're touching, you know, that water. They're, they're protecting water quality. They're not in some skyscraper in New York, you know, talking about what what should be done or, or what would be a good idea or, or what, you know, different theories. They're hands-on. They're doing it every day. So, I mean, obviously they know a whole lot more than a lot of these other folks about what it takes to be a good steward. Well, and that goes back to something that I've held for a long time. By the way, I do think it's funny that you brought up it's kind of like being a preacher because that's actually my other profession. Uh, but um, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And that's always been the reason that I've been an advocate for control, especially when it comes to things like land and, and environment conservation being as close to the local level as possible, because you can't tell me that a farmer that has been on a piece of land and his family's owned it for 120 years, that some bureaucrat in Washington cares more about conserving that land than he does. And so it just makes sense, like you said, because there is a passion there, there's a, there's a connection to the land in that way. Um, it just makes sense for them to be the ones that are in charge of conserving it because they have the most interest in making sure it's conserved and conserved properly. Uh, but, you know, I appreciate you taking your time to speak with us today. And before you go, is there anything that I might not have thought to talk about anything that you think my audience might need to know when it comes to agriculture, particularly here in the state of Alabama? Well, you know, again, I, I would just say, you know, from an Alabama perspective, we've got, you know, great farmers that are, are working very hard to make sure they're getting a, a good quality product to the grocery store, to the restaurant. Um, you know, whether it's cotton, whether it's catfish, we've got a, a wide diversity of, of crops here in Alabama that we take a lot of a lot of pride in. It's a joy to come to work every day and advocate on their behalf. And, uh, you know, right now we're playing a lot of defense from a policy standpoint. I think the last few years we had the opportunity to, to kind of be on the offensive side of things in terms of rolling back regulations and, and pushing back against some of the bureaucracy. Unfortunately, um, the, the tide has turned and, and we're in more of a defensive posture, but we're going to keep working hard to make sure that we do our very best to let our farmers continue to enjoy their way of life and produce food and fiber for the rest of us. Okay. So for anybody that might be watching this interview and understands the concern and would like to get involved, is there anything that they might be able to do to help out American farmers or Alabama farmers? Yeah, I would say the first thing is to, to try and support your local farmers. We have a, um, a new program in the state, the State Department of Agriculture is managing, it's called Sweet Grown Alabama. So there's a lot more branded product out there. Um, you know, you talked about, um, you know, supporting those local farmers and local communities. That That's one way to do it is look for that brand. Um, you know that you're buying from an Alabama farmer. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you're not politically active, if you're not following politics, this is a, a really good time to pay attention to what's going on, regardless of, of what side of the aisle you may follow on. I think um, we need more people interested in the process, following what's going on and holding our elected officials accountable. So eat local and, and vote. That would be two things that I would say would, would be very helpful. All right. Well, uh, simple but good advice, especially when you consider that some of the products that are grown right here in Alabama are absolutely fantastic. I know, uh, you know, I, I eat a lot of local honey. Um, I have friends that are in the beef production down here. Alabama beef is fantastic. And uh, sitting on my bed just a few feet from where I'm sitting right now were some red leg cotton sheets, which are grown right here in North Alabama. Yep. And so, yep. uh, I mean, there's 
believe me, you're not going to be disappointed. And there are a ton of ways to support your local farmers. So I would, I would say I couldn't agree more. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mr. Walker. It's always been a pleasure. Mitt Walker of the Alabama Farmers Federation. We thank you for joining us and, and ho hopefully our audience is a little better informed about Alabama agriculture as a result of our time here. Fantastic. Enjoy the, the conversation. Thank you, Caleb. All right. Thank you so much. That was Mitt, Walkner, uh, uh, Mitt Walker of Alabama Farmers Federation. We're going to be back in just a second on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. If you want to help us out, fight the dark cyber overlords at YouTube, all you have to do is hit that subscribe button and click the little notification bell. And uh, if you happen to be listening to us on the podcast on Spotify or Amazon Music, be sure to like and give a five-star review. That helps us out with the algorithms and it helps us give out, put out more conservative content. So since we're already on the subject of agriculture with our interview that we just had with Mitt Walker, we're going to go ahead and transition now to something that I've been doing every year after state convention. We are going to interview a couple of the state officers from the Alabama FFA Association. So for this evening, we have joining us in the studio today, Olivia Powers, the Alabama FFA reporter, and Brianna Payne, the Alabama FFA senator. Welcome to the program, ladies. Thank you for being with us. I can tell you're really excited, <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's great to have you all with us, and we appreciate you being generous with your time. It's always a pleasure to bring in some state officers, especially considering that I used to be a state officer myself, and so that's something that I always look forward to. So if you would go ahead and tell the audience, and we'll start with you, um, Olivia, uh, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved in the FFA to begin with. So I actually originally approached my advisor about being being a part of the FFA in seventh grade, um, most members, they like to have the story where they were voluntold. Well, I voluntold my ag teacher that I was going to do it. Um, so I already knew that I wanted to be a part of it. Now it's just scared little seventh grader with my lunchbox. I ate lunch. So what was the room. reason that you had such a strong desire to be in it? Was it your family or, or how did that happen? Oh, so I have grown up showing cattle and horses. Um, ah. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. So cattle and horses. So do you have a, uh, I'm, I'm guessing your family owns some land. Is that like your primary source of income or is it just a hobby thing kind of that they do on the side? It's definitely more of a hobby slash money pit, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. Sadly, a lot of agriculture yeah. projects are. <laughs> Very much so. I, I know the joys and discomforts of agricultural life. Oh, holding in more definitely. <laughs> definitely. All right. Um, so what about you, Brianna? What what drew you into the FFA? So my story is more like the voluntold spectrum of FFA members. Okay. I was put into an ag class my seventh grade year, and I actually looked at the advisor and the teacher of that class and said, I'm in the wrong room. And she said, nope, you're here for the year. Make the best of it. And I got started in the creed, and then I was like, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. And here I am now. Yeah, you, you like the creed, huh? That's, I do like the creed. Is, is that a contest you got involved with? Yes. I actually won state creed speaking in 2017. 
Okay, so uh, for the audience, I could tell them, but I'd, I'd rather you do it. Um, just give them a little background and insight into what all the creed entails. So the FFA creed is our standards and our love for this association, the things that we stand by, the things that we promote, and it's kind of our rules, in a sense, what we like to uphold. And the creed contest, you say all five paragraphs of the creed, and you deliver it to judges, and then they'll ask you questions on the creed. can be agriculturally related questions, and can be your favorite paragraph and why. And I actually won district, then I went to state in one state, then I placed in the bronze level at nationals. That's very impressive. Now, I, I know personally, I did do creed contests, but I never made it past the chapter level. So you made it significantly farther <laughs> than me. I got beat in my first contest. So uh, congratulations on that and going on to represent the state of Alabama. That's that's very difficult to do. They only get one representative per state. And so if, if you were the state winner, that says a lot about your ability to do that, uh, especially when it comes to the questions like the creed, yes. you know, there's only so much you can do presentation wide, but especially with the questions, you have to be able to think very quickly to be able to do those. Yes, sir. All right. So uh, since we have already kind of talked about the contest a little bit, Olivia, have you been involved in any career development events? Um, actually, quite a few. My chapter, I'm from the Thorsby chapter of FFA, and our chapter is super CD heavy. I was stuck in two teams. My not stuck in but like hey this is what you're gonna do my seventh grade year I've done livestock I've done meats evaluation took that to nationals poultry evaluation won state with my team super proud of that that was the last that's one I did. super impressive it's because for people that very don't know, competitive yeah poultry is super competitive in the state of Alabama it's it's one of our largest ag industries and the contest reflects that there's a lot of chapters that are really good at poultry yeah uh Thorsby top place individual if I do say so um, but that was the online contest here. Uh, so I also did horse evaluation and nursery and landscape and Envirothon. Good gracious. You've been involved in just about everything and had a <laughs> yeah. good bit of success. I mean, not that you were just involved in everything, but you actually won state in a contest. That's impressive. It is very hardcore in my chapter. And I, de <laughs> I definitely got sucked into that mindset. Yeah. Well, uh, just sort of as a general rule, and either one of you can answer this if you'd like, uh, what would you say is the advantage having gone through some career development events yourself? Uh, what are some of the advantages that you've, you've been able to get from that? And, and what are some advantages that just the general FFA member can get uh, going through this? So, well, would you like to? So for me personally, when I got started in FFA mm -hmm. and I started the creed, I didn't even want to say it in front of the classroom. I was so shy, shook. I was quaking in my knees as I said those paragraphs to my class. And then my advisor was like, hey, you're going to say this in front of all these people. And I was like, no. <laughs> and I almost passed out. And then she made me do it. And here I am now going to talk to chapters all the time, getting to do interviews like this and going out and showing, hey, I'm a product of what CDEs can do. They can change you. They can help you become more of a person. I've learned interview skills from all the many interviews we've done. And from those questions, thinking fast on your feet, that is a life skill because mm -hmm. there are things we call elevator speeches in FFA where you get in an elevator and someone asks you, hey, what is that jacket you're wearing? You have to be able to think fast. And that's something that can happen to you in everyday life. For me, just the biggest thing it's taught me is how to study. Um, coming from a small school, our, uh, our, hmm. Our, not an education style, but education style is pretty laid back. Uh, we 
do all the normal things, but, you know, just being in a college class and having taken college classes, you have to know how to study for the real world and you mm -hmm. have to know how to study for an officer position and just being able to know how to do that and learn myself and my study style was huge as far as CDs went. Yeah, those are a couple of great examples. And I'll tell you, I didn't, coming from a rural school myself, I didn't really learn how to study until I got into the master's program here at Faulkner. So, uh, you know, I'm now I'm reading, you know, massive books on theology every week. And it's uh, it's a little too much for me to handle, to be honest, and some sometimes. But, you know, you learn learn to soldier through it. And I'm a product of my CDs as well. I mean, the reason I'm able to do this show is because I was involved in prepared public speaking, extemp uh, speaking, Parley Pro. Uh, I did livestock judging, and there's there's a public speaking aspect of that. You have to be able to give reasons and be able to back up why you made the decisions that you did, which, I mean, that's what politics is all about. And so in a lot of ways, I'm the product of the CDEs that I went through as an FFA member myself. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. Um, what about some of your supervised agricultural experience projects? If you would give us a little insight into that, and Brianna, we can start with you. So my SAE is not necessarily traditional. Mine is in ag education. I started in the ninth grade going and job shadowing ag teachers that were surrounding Lincoln. Then mm -hmm. in the 10th grade, I started actually creating lesson plans after I'd watched how those lesson plans play out. Started creating my own, and then I was asked by a Lincoln Elementary School teacher if I would come and deliver one of my lessons. And I said, you know what? I would like to do this quarterly. So every nine weeks, I would go over to the elementary school and teach a lesson to a preschool, first grade and a fifth grade classroom. That was, those were the three I did until COVID and then the schools were shut down. So yeah. I had to reevaluate and that's how Rooted in Ag got started, which is my Facebook channel where I post all of my videos. They're like three minutes long. It's just a short little blippet of, hey, this is what this ag product does. And then we do a cute little activity with it to help the kids remember. Oh, a fellow YouTuber. Well, that's yes. cool. Uh, hopefully YouTube is less likely to ban your videos than they are mine because I, I get strikes against me all the time. So, um, they're, they're really mad about something I said about Dr. Fauci a while back. But anyway, so <laughs> Olivia, what, Olivia, what about you? Uh, what, what was your SAE? So I have two SAEs, one being um, equine science and the other being uh, beef production through placement. And both of those SAEs, you know, it's either our family farm, equine science, or a family friend's farm, beef production through placement. And I have shown both of those uh, species and just being in the show circuit teaches you so much, especially how to handle pressure and how to work diligently and work hard all day long. And mm -hmm. it's really given me an appreciation for being able to go to bed. You know, you're, you're exhausted, your body's exhausted, your mind ex is exhausted. And that's the, first of all, that's the best sleep you'll ever have. <laughs> and second of all, it just gives you some satisfaction. So I, I will say personally, I think there's no sleep like post-national convention sleep. I mean, that's the best. <laughs> you sleep for like two days after that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, one thing that I did want to ask you about that, since uh, I actually showed myself, um, when it comes to being able to show animals, I think that there is, and this is really directed at both of you, there's a lot of cynicism about your generation, especially Gen Z, that they complain all the time, that they're snowflakes, that they don't work hard. And uh, if you go to state or national convention, like 
you see an awful lot of young people that are not afraid to get their hands dirty. They're not afraid to work hard and they're not afraid to put in the effort and time needed to be successful in these projects. And so uh, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, your generation FFA uh, will help change that perspective if, if people just get a chance to get to know you and understand more about your organization. Um, one thing that I, I wanted to ask too, since you guys are the reporter in the Sentinel, now I know what that means because I was an FFA member. We might have some people in our audience that don't. So uh, Olivia, we'll start with you this time. What does the FFA reporter do? So the reporter um, in opening ceremonies it states that we inform the people, and that is pretty much exactly what we do. I, in my duties, I handle social media, um, a lot of our sponsor outreach, and um, the newsletter that we put up on our uh, Alabama Association website. And so I believe that's actually called the FFA Reporter, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, so social media is a big part of what I do, along with all of the other standard across the board across the officer team duties all right and uh brianna what are the duties of a sentinel so sentinel in opening ceremonies it is stationed by the door and my duties are to make sure that everyone is welcome to make sure that the meeting room is kept orderly to make sure that the president and all the other officers have exactly what they need so that we're able to carry out our duties so i kind of refer to myself as the mesh of the team. I make sure everyone has everything that they need and I make sure that everyone's getting along and that everybody that is involved in whatever we're doing, whatever activity that is, that they're all good and they're excited to be there. And if y'all knew Brianna, that fits <laughs> her so perfectly. She literally is the glue that holds us together. Everybody loves her. Well, that is great that they picked you for that position because I'm a former state sentinel, which I thought was a terrible idea. <laughs> you guys picked the most socially awkward member of my team and put him as the sentinel. Good job, guys. No, no I love being a sentinel. I really did. It's a great position. Um, so I, I thought that maybe it'd be interesting to talk about this, and, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit, Brianna, with your SAE and having to sort of rethink how to do that with uh, everything that happened with the virus. FFA really was hit hard by this because the thing that we do is get together and talk about things. We're an ag education organization, and that's a lot more difficult when you can't meet with people. And so if you would just kind of tell the audience about uh, what your plans are for being able to reset FFA and get back into sort of a sense of normalcy? Because I, I know for a year we didn't have a whole lot of state contests, or if we did, we had to do them very differently, and the convention was very different. So, so how do you adjust to those kinds of things? Right now, our biggest focus is trying to get our membership back up. Mm -hmm. We lost quite a few members, which kind of doesn't affect us as much as it affected some other organizations. However, our membership is the thing, the thing that allows us to go out and do state convention. It is what allows us to get to do all the many things that we do as state officers. And so trying to put, push that membership to come back up and also trying to make sure that everyone is able to come back together again, because like you said, that is what our organization is all about. We're about connecting. We're about forming that bond so that we're able to better serve and tell what agriculture actually is. So that's two of our main focuses. Yeah, Olivia, since you're the reporter, I mean, I imagine that your job got significantly uh, affected by the fact that you're not able to meet up with people as often as you used to or have to readjust that. And so what were some of the adjustments that you had to make and, and what, what, which ones do you plan to make in the future? Now that we're trending towards a positive kind of space to where we can get together and where we can do things, mm -hmm. 
um, it's getting much more easier and it's getting to the point to where it is sort of what we used to do. But I know um, on the district team and on last year's team, it was super hard to just find things to post about and find things to talk about when you're writing your newsletter because there's not really all that much you can do and you have done. So what we have done in the past and what we will continue to um, maintain, and I think it's really sustainable, is to be able to talk about members and what they're doing on their own and how that chapter is surviving through COVID and what they're doing to keep everything up. It's really um, because we're not allowed to do as much as a state officer team and district officer team and gather that way. What we've done is focus on chapters and individuals and members and what they're doing that's good. Well, that's actually something that I wouldn't have thought of personally, because, you know, you think media, somebody that deals specifically with social media, the reporter, you wouldn't have as much adjustment for you because, you know, you can still do pretty much all that stuff. You can still write articles, that kind of thing. Uh, but you can't write articles if there's nothing to write about. Exactly. And so that does present a challenge. It's like you were like uh, the end of the Watchmen movie where they don't have anything to report on. They're just like you know, doing a bunch of fluff pieces. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I can see how that would have definitely been a challenge. Uh, what would you say FFA as a whole is, is going to try to do moving forward, not just as a result of, of the pandemic and trying to get back to contests, but uh, uh, what are some of your goals? What are the things that you guys are aspiring to do for the FFA in the future? Brianna? What, one of my main goals is to make sure that everyone is included, to make sure that our membership as a whole is is focused on all of us being together, focused on us kind of getting back to agriculture in a sense, not focusing on competitions as much, but focusing on what exactly FFA is and what we stand for. My mom works at Alabama Institute for the Deaf and Blind, which is how when I got started in the creed, I actually signed the creed. That's what got me as far as it did is I signed it. No one had ever seen that before. That is pretty cool. It's still, that is I what can't... I'm known for today. <laughs> hey, signing girl. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, you're like, hey, you signed the creed. The reason I did that is to show that, hey, AIDB actually has an FFA chapter. They didn't come out and do anything because they didn't feel like they were included. So that mm -hmm. is one of my goals is to make sure that everyone is seen and everyone is heard and that we all have a voice so that we're able to then promote agricultural awareness. Well, side note, and I know that we're, we're kind of talking inside baseball here live on the air, uh, but get in touch with my dad because one of his goals at the State Department is to make sure that we have a way for private schools to get a charter. And so if, if inclusion is part of that, then that mm -hmm. would definitely be something he'd be interested in. Uh, but as far as that goes, that is actually a really cool thing. I can only sign Jesus Loves Me and only like a <laughs> course of that. So uh, definitely something that I think that FFA could could benefit from having more people like that in there. Um, more people that are that are interested in, in making sure that inclusion takes place. So, you know, I commend you for that. That's, re you. that's really, really cool. Um, Olivia, what about you? So just a general goal that I've had in running pretty much since I started running for district in ninth grade is um, there are those chapters that they are so super strong in one area and they're so good at it. Like my chapter with CDEs and, you know, that's their strength. That's what they're proud of. There will always be just a handful of kids in that chapter in that community that are like, you know what? I really want to do this 
but I don't feel like I have the opportunity to because my chapter doesn't have the resources and we're not we're not educated on that. And my advisor, he's he's wonderful, absolutely fabulous. And um, anybody pretty much could say this about theirs, but you know, there are just some areas where you might be interested in and that's just not somewhere they've ever been able to gain ground. Um, so it's, it's an uphill battle when you're coming from a chapter um, that is super strong and something that's on um, a different spectrum from what you want to do. So I want to uh, become a resource to members that feel that way. And I want there to be an outlet where members can reach out to other advisors that are maybe super good at that, other members that are good at that, and um, just get to where if you would like to do something, you feel comfortable going after it. Um, and there is no ambition that can be directed in somewhere where you're not passionate about and it be used correctly. So that's something I've really uh, felt passionate about and just educating people on, you know, you're super good at this. Hey, there is an opportunity within our organization to channel your interest. Yeah, and that's something that I think that we're getting good at, partly because of the onset of technology. Because in the past, you might have an ag teacher that's fantastic at livestock, for example, but doesn't know beans about teaching a public speaker, but might have a kid that's really interested in that. And so I think that there's been more of an effort, at least that I've seen from my perspective, of ag teachers being willing to actually, uh, you know, do a, do a little bit of uh, maybe I help your chapter out with this, and, and then you come and help my chapter out with that next week and that kind of thing. And so I really do think that that's because, you know, FFA is such a big organization, it's impossible to be good at everything. You just can't do it. Um, and, and because it does, you know, have so many different moving parts and, and aspects to it, that's just the case. So as a result, I think that's a really good thing that you're working towards there. And actually, Not Ashamed Media is trying to help with that a little bit, my company that I've started here. And uh, we're, we're doing some working on it, trying to get some funding from the State Department. But uh, I'm, I'm working with Jared on that. Uh, to get some instructional videos for different CDEs and different SAE projects by, and we're trying to get different ag teachers all over the state to come in here and record some educational videos on that. So definitely something that I'm interested in. And I think that the, the organization as a whole will really benefit from that. So one thing I wanted to ask both of you and just kind of get your perspective on this. We've been talking a lot about uh, the organization and people that might be interested in the organization itself, but there might be some of my viewers that are new to FFA, they don't really know what it is, maybe they didn't have it back where they grew up, and so they're unfamiliar with it, but they think, you know, that that's a farm kid thing, that's for kids that are actually raising livestock or raising crops or something like that, that's not really something my child needs, uh, needs to be involved in or would have any interest in. Um, if you could kind of give what you were talking about, your elevator speech, uh, kind of give your pitch to those parents, to what exactly would be the benefits of their kid getting involved in something like this, even if they don't necessarily come from an ag background. I remember the day I came home and told my mom that I was joining FFA. She looked at me with these big bug eyes and was like, what the heck is that? <laughs> and I told her, I said, well, I really don't know, but they want me to be here. And it was that sense of belonging that I had not really felt at my school before huh. because my school is more sports and athletics. I actually played basketball. I'm four foot eleven. <laughs> Me playing basketball is a pretty interesting thing. Are you saying that there are high schools in Alabama where <laughs> athletics is a big deal? Yes, I oh, am. Surprise! Yes. Shocker! I know. Shocker! I, I, I can't Shocker. believe it. I... Yes. So for me, having that sense of belonging was a really big thing. 
then as I progressed with the creed and I started going to competitions, I remember my very first state convention, I was with all the high schoolers, so I already felt cool, me and my little seventh grade self. And they were telling me how this organization is about promoting agriculture, but it's also about building leadership skills. And I was like, okay, I want to do this. So my mom has watched me grow and she's just followed along. She's been great. My mom is my biggest supporter. She helps me through everything because there's been times that I've just cried over interview positions, cried over competitions. I was like, I'm not good enough to do this. I can't do this. And then she reminds me why I got started in this organization and why I am where I am today. And that is to promote agriculture, but also to build those leadership skills. Yeah, I can't wait for State Convention to come back in full to where we're doing it the way we used to, because I've always said that's one of our biggest recruitment tools. If you can get a kid to State Convention, I'm not saying that he'll be like a lifelong member or anything, but you're going to get some involvement out of that kid more often than not. And, you know, a lot of my audience is here in the capital city, too. That's a big event for Montgomery. And I was glad to see it come back to Montgomery because the Renaissance is a great facility and, uh, you know, for about a week downtown, you see nothing but a sea of blue jackets everywhere you go, uh, which is a little annoying if you're trying to eat at a restaurant there. But other than that, it's great. No, I, I love seeing seeing y'all. and I can't wait for uh, next year when y'all are going to come back in full force and you guys will be presiding over that convention. Uh, Olivia, same question. Okay. Can you repeat same question? We kind of <laughs> have got off on we, we did. We, yeah. Well, um, this is a secret I'm going to let you in on. Talk show hosts typically like to talk, and so I apologize for that. I kind of, uh, I, I'm the reason for that. But uh, I was I was kind of asking about um, what would your elevator pitch be to somebody that they're, they're a parent that has a kid that's in FFA or in high school, but they don't know if they should have any involvement in FFA because they think that's just a, a farm kid kind of thing. So coming from production agriculture, I already knew it was something I wanted to do. But for kids that are from a more urban, more suburban, you know, place, it's just as simple as, and it's it's in our mission statement that, you know, agriculture is a tool that we're using. It's a vehicle to build leaders. It is what we're here for and it is what we're advocating for, but it's just kind of a, uh, it really is the vehicle that we develop student leaders from. So it's not just about agriculture, although that's what's at our heart. It's really about the students and their potential. Well said. Well, I got to tell you one last thing that I, I will mention before we leave for those of you that may not be as familiar with the organization that are contemplating whether or not their kids should get involved in it. Uh, I want you also to notice, because there has been a stigma with FFA for a long time that the, the boys go into FFA and the girls go into home ec. Well, we, we've got two lovely ladies here with us today. And uh, in my experience, the women have an awful lot of the leadership roles in FFA. They're very involved in it. And the membership itself is pretty diverse. We're split pretty evenly. So, um, you know, I don't see any reason why you, you mentioned that you only have one guy on your state. <laughs> we we do. God bless him. <laughs> Lucky kid. Lucky kid. Uh, but yeah, so uh, being women in the FFA, I mean, I think you guys are prime examples of that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah there's there's not much of a women typically, especially when they're younger, um, our, our little brains work differently. <laughs> um, but I think we use that to our advantage and we definitely uh, know how to harness that and apply it. And we apply ourselves pretty well. Uh, so women are kind of pretty prevalent in this state in leadership positions in ag, yeah. There's six guys 
across the state of Alabama right now that are in a leadership position with FFA, mm -hmm. with the districts and the state. Wow. So, and, and for those of you who don't know, there's three districts. So that's uh, six times four, mm -hmm. which would be, and so if there's only six of them, that's what, 25%? Yep. <laughs> yeah. So the girls kind of run the thing. I, I used to joke, we had a, uh, we had women start taking leadership positions. Y'all were brought in in 1969 mm -hmm. and y'all already had a national officer by like 1971, <laughs> I think. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we, we let them in and they took over. That was a <laughs> huge mistake on our part. I don't know how we lost that vote, but anyway. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, glad to have y'all here. And uh, women have been a, a huge asset to the FFA and you guys are, are both testaments. To that it's a good thing that we integrated back in the 60s the way that we did um i always do this with all of my guests before we sign off because you know i don't have perfect knowledge and so there might be some things that you guys might want to share with the audience that i wouldn't think to ask and so if there's anything that you guys would think that you know maybe my audience needs to know that i wouldn't have thought to ask uh, if you would just go ahead and i'll give you the floor uh, to use a part of the pro term there, uh, I'll give you the floor to uh, speak freely. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience? So I know that there are a lot of girls that like pageants and that might think that this organization is all hands-on and all about farming. Um, I'm actually Talaga County's Teen Miss Agribusiness for 2021. I was for 2022. I also show a horse. There are no limits to what you can do in this organization. If you want to do it, somebody will help you find how to do that thing <laughs> oh yeah 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 if you want to get involved ffa people are super helpful yes absolutely there is no there's no boundary that you feel that you could have that would prevent you from being successful in ffa absolutely nothing all right well ladies thank you so much for being with us it's been an absolute pleasure olivia powers the alabama ffa reporter from the thorsby chapter is that yes, correct? yes, that yeah. is. And uh, Brianna Payne, the Alabama FA Sentinel from the Lincoln chapter. Lincoln chapter. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us here. It's been an absolute pleasure being able to speak with you today. So we're going to be right back in just a second on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, we appreciate you being with us. We appreciate our guests, Mitt Walker and Brianna Payne and Olivia Powers, dropping by to talk to us about some of the agricultural issues that are going on in the state right now, both with the youth and the ag program with FFA, and then, of course, with some of the issues facing farmers themselves with Mitt Walker. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and request, first of all, that you hit like and subscribe because that helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube, just a little way for us to, you know, take down the algorithms and take down the uh, the Decepticons that run that particular website. So if you are so inclined, please do so. If you don't like our show, hit like anyway. We don't really care whether you like, you don't have to like it. You just have to hit the button. That's the main thing. We hope you like it though. All right. So let's go ahead and go to our daily dose of stupid. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. <laughs> And for this evening's Daily Dose of Stupid, the first Daily Dose of Stupid that we have 
because we are continuing to do our, our tradition of a double dose of Daily Dose of Stupid. The first one is the White House has now claimed they are saving you money. That's right. The, the White House is saving you money on your 4th of July barbecue. Now, of course, this is in response to the 4th of July, which was last week. They, they did this like right before the weekend, and so we didn't have time to get it in on the show. But it's really interesting. They, they saved you a lot. They saved you an awful lot, and we'll just go ahead and go straight to the tweet that they issued out from the White House. This is your government, by the way, doing this, government employees coming up with these things. Planning a cookout this year? Catch up on the news. <laughs> According to the Farm Bureau, the cost of a 4th of July barbecue is down from last year. It's a fact you must hear. Erd. They're trying to do mustard. I, anyway. Hot dog, the Biden economic plan is working. Okay. And that's something we can all relish. Now, if you will look at that graphic there that they posted with this, it says the cost of a 4th of July cookout in 2021 is down 16 cents from last year. And I'd also like for you to observe the spread that they have out there in the graphic. Some of the things are kind of standard barbecue. You've got a, a bowl of ice cream. You got some baked beans and some potato chips. And then there's like four random slices of cheese and water with appears to be what like a lime in it. I'm guessing there's the cost of water is about the same. And then just a pan of stir fried ground beef. <laughs> Very bizarre <laughs> selection. If if that is what your Fourth of July cookout looks like. You probably went to the wrong Fourth of July barbecue. You could have you could have gone to Wendy's and get a better <laughs> meal than that. But man, I or Whataburger, go to Whataburger. But anyway, <laughs> it just amazes me that the Biden administration is probably that's like really you saved us a whole sixteen cents on that. Oh, okay, all right, good job, thanks Biden administration. I don't know what I'm going to do with the the sixteen cents. I mean. Uh, you, you can't even buy like one M90. <laughs> you can't, can't buy one firework for your 4th of July barbecue that way. And also this is supposed to be, as I understand it, the metric that they're using from the Farm Bureau is that it's supposed to be a meal that feeds 10 people. You, you save 16 cents on a meal for 10 people. You realize that's not even two cents a person, right? Like <laughs> this is. This is not exactly savings that is going to be a big deal. And I, I love the fact that they're playing this up as though it's a big deal. That they save 16 cents on a meal that's supposedly going to feed 10 people. I don't think the spread there that they showed is going to do that. But let's just go along with their premise here for a second. Do you remember back when the Trump tax cuts went through that the GOP in the House and the Senate passed it? And I believe it was 2018 was the first year that they did the tax cuts. And it found it turned out, even though the Democrats you know, swore that this was not the case, that the tax cuts pretty much helped out everybody. Almost everybody saw a roughly 1.8 to 2% tax cut across the board. And uh, when that happened, they said that this is going to save the average family of four a few hundred dollars, like, you know, anywhere from two to $500 a year. And the Democrats laughed at that. <laughs> that's, that's chump change. That won't even buy a saddle for my dressage horse. Like, Okay, Democrats, thanks a lot for that, you pretentious jerks. Anyway, 
they were pretending like that extra 500 bucks in tax cuts granted should have been more. I, one of the very rare things I agree with Democrats on, we should have cut taxes by like, you know, 10%. But anyway, they may, they were like, oh, this little two, $300 a year, that's not going to make a difference for anybody. It's not like families are going to be able to use that for anything. But 16 cents on a 10-person barbecue, that we're supposed to be impressed with? I, none of that makes any sense to me whatsoever. But here's the funny thing about all that. You'll notice, if you're looking at the graphic, that they worded it very carefully. You'll say it, the cost of a 4th of July barbecue is down from last year. Well, let's see. It is 2021. Last year would have been 2020. My math is good on that. What was going on in 2020? Oh, right. The pandemic. We were in the middle of shutdowns when all of this happened, which, by the way, resulted in a cascade effect that had massive meat shortages everywhere because we had supply chain issues. You remember, we actually covered this when it was happening last year. There were supply chain issues because it's not that we didn't have enough food. It's just that our food systems have become very efficient at predicting where that food is needed most. And so a lot of the meat and, and sort of the basics that you need in your kitchen were not making it to the grocery store because they were going to restaurants. But the restaurants are all closed. And so we did have some supply chain hookups just because we're not used to shipping that much meat. We're not used to that much demand being in your local grocery store and having zero demand in your local restaurant because they've all been forced to be closed by an illegal government shutdown. So that was what we were dealing with at the time. And you may also recall that because people were staying home, pretty much all of your barbecue supplies specifically were all sold out. You couldn't get ground beef. You couldn't get steak. I remember there were a couple of weeks you just could not buy ground beef. You had to basically get lucky and walk in on a day that they restocked. I remember there was a feeding frenzy here in Montgomery at the Winn-Dixie just down the road here. Uh, because, well, it was the Piggly Wiggly, but whatever, you know, it changed stores. Anyway, not really the point. Pretty much all of the barbecue stuff, all of the food, all of the, the stuff that goes with it, grills were getting sold out. All the stuff that you normally need for barbecue was flying off the shelves because so many people were stuck at home with their family. They had nothing else to do. They were working from home or not working at all. And so they decided, okay, well, let's, let's do some grilling out since we're going to be here anyway. And so the Biden administration claiming like this is some kind of massive victory that down from last year when there was a catastrophe going on and we had supply chain problems and specifically the stuff that they're touting is now cheaper is some kind of big economic victory and a testament to Joe Biden's economic policies is just stupid because it would be like, you remember back in Hurricane Katrina? where there were people going down there with giant cases of water and they were selling like a case of 24 water for like 90 bucks. That would be like the year after Hurricane Katrina. The mayor of Baton Rouge being like, hey guys, look how low the price of water is now. If you compare the price of water now to where it was this time last year, look how much I brought down the price of water. Yeah, but you're kind of ignoring the fact that there was sort of a big deal going on that was causing the prices to skyrocket. That's the thing that the Biden administration does not want you to think about. They're hoping that you lack the critical thinking skills and memory to remember that back in 2020, 
barbecue supplies were extremely expensive because they were very high in demand. We saw the biggest spike that we've ever seen in American history for some of these products that they're talking about. And now that the prices are down naturally, which by the way, that downward trend started way before Joe Biden took office or even won the election. But now they're acting as though this is some kind of giant economic, uh, th this is like a, a signpost to show you that Joe Biden's economic policies are indeed having the intended effect. But if you will go ahead and check this out, you will notice on this chart, and I know that some of the print is tiny, but this is the best that I can do. Uh, and by the way, the, the references and the sources to all this are in the description here. So you'll notice all the different prices that are listed here. And these are for all the regular commodities. And I have highlighted here May 2020 to May 2021. You'll notice that the price for all of these commodities, with the exception of what? Beef and eggs has gone up. Beef and eggs has gone down. But everything else has increased. And if you look at the top there, the total your grocery bill has actually increased by 2.2%, which again, you may say, oh, that's no big deal, Caleb. Well, 2.2% is kind of a big deal depending on what your family budget is. If, if you spend, you know, a thousand bucks, which is about, about normal for a family of four, well, that 2% is, you know, 20 bucks. And that, a, 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 it sort of kind of accrues over a year. And it builds up. And so after a year's time, you know, you've spent a few hundred bucks on that more. And that's also kind of ignoring the fact that these prices are continuing to rise. This is not a stagnant thing. So the Biden administration is trying to tell, look how well we've done and look how well the economic policy is working. See, barbecue supplies have gone down by a, you know, measly little 16 cents. But they're saying, well, it has gone down some. But the only reason for that is because of ground beef spiking so much last year, and now it's down a little bit from last year because of that crisis. This is not a good comparison because everything else on your grocery bill, with the exception of eggs, has actually increased as opposed to this time last year. And so they took a very, very specific thing to show, see, prices are down when in fact, for basically every other item that you would buy, they're not. Milk, uh, other meats other than beef, practically everything else you can buy, bread, all of your standard amenities, all increased since Joe Biden took office, all increased from last year. During a pandemic, I might add, all have actually gone up in price. And the thing is, yes, technically, technically, the price for beef is down. But just because it's down from last year does not mean that it's not still high. So, for example, let's say that to, for whatever reason tomorrow, the gas prices go to eight bucks a gallon. You know, God forbid that would happen, but let's just say eight bucks a, uh, a gallon for a, a gallon of gasoline. And let's say at this exact same time in 2022, it's down to seven. Well, would that be something to brag about? Well, it is down from last year, yes, but last year was insane. And so it's still way too high. And that's exactly the scenario we find ourselves in with this. Because if you look at this chart, which is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
and uh, also in coordination with the United States Department of Agriculture, this is the price of a pound of ground beef on average retail in American stores. And you'll see the chart there. It goes all the way back to, I've made this one for 10 years, so it goes back to 2011 and goes all the way up to present day. Well, you'll notice there's some spikes in there significantly, but 2020, you'll see that massive spike that we were just talking about a second ago, where it was the biggest increase and the, the fastest increase that we had ever seen. So now let's take a look at some important plot points here, because that's where it was today, May 2021, 4.101. So on average, about $4.10. If you look at February 2020, before the shutdown, in other words, this would have been in the economy that was unaffected by the shutdown, it was at 3.86 or 7 if you round up. And so that's about 30 cents cheaper, 25, closer to 25. And so the price of beef is still up. The fact that the Biden administration is bragging about this is hilarious because they're still at significantly above pre-coronavirus levels. And so the idea that they're saying, look at how much money we're saving and how much the economic recovery. Okay, but the price of beef is still higher than it's supposed to be. It's just down from last year at this same time. In fact, the last time that the price of beef was this high was back in November 2015, which would have been back in the Barack Obama presidency. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily the economic policies were the only factor here. I'm, I'm not suggesting that at all. But isn't it interesting we see a sharp uptick in beef prices? And then right around the end of Obama's term, right into the beginning of Trump's, we start seeing those prices substantially decrease because you'll see there in 2016, it starts going down. 2017 is when Trump takes office and it stays pretty stagnant up until the pandemic where it spikes back up. And so even the thing that they can hang their hat on, as it were, the price of beef going down, is still a massive fail. Like it's, it's still higher than it probably should be if we were comparing apples to apples here. It's still higher than it was pre-pandemic. But this is the only thing that the Biden administration can come up with to try to say that they're saving the money. So even their one bragging right is still a complete sham. They're still, it's still misleading even to use that. So the perfect response to this, I think, is laughter and scorn. And nobody does those two things better than the Babylon Bee. And so I just had to share these with you because I thought that they were so good. The Babylon Bee had the perfect response to this. Check this out. The Babylon Bee Treasury announces minting of the new Biden coin worth 16 cents. <laughs> uh, I love it. The, the come on man and the... Um, 16 cent ice cream cone on the other side. I also like the fact that it looks like a penny because with the inflation that we're seeing under Joe Biden, pennies, you know, 16 cents might be the new penny. We, we might have our, our currency multiply by 16 times and, and 16 cents becomes the value of what a penny would be today. So the Babylon B doing a great job there, really doing yeoman's work. And they also had this one, which I thought was really good. Bernie Sanders submits bill to tax the 16 cents saved on barbecues. Man, the Babylon Bee, I, I normally don't show their stuff because yes, it's funny, but again, I'd rather you go to there. I don't want to like just steal their material and 
and show the jokes for you. And then you come here instead of going to their website for their material. I feel like that's underhanded, but man, I just had to put this one up here because they did such a good job messing with them. But ultimately that is what it boils down to. The Biden administration thinks you're a moron. They think you're stupid and they think that they can trot these things out here that they obviously had to pick and choose and, and pick the one specific thing that was down even just a tiny hair from last year and use that as the big example that they trot out of how they're saving you money, even though they know that the prices on every other commodity has gone up by an average of 2.2% over last year when we were in the midst of a global pandemic. They, even though they know that, they have to trot out the one tiny little thing that they can show that shows, I don't know, maybe there might be something working. It doesn't. It's a It's an outlier and the price is actually still way higher than it should be. But the point is, this is the best the Biden administration can do. And they're just hoping that nobody is intelligent enough or, you know, owns Google or owns a device that can get on Google to actually fact check them on any of these things. But we have another Daily Dose of Stupid, which I'm sure that all of you are going to enjoy because it is a local story and it involves one of our all-time favorites, Josh Moon. So Josh Moon of Alabama Political Reporter, and he is apparently going after Congressman Mo Brooks, who is running for the United States Senate. And you may recall that Mo Brooks actually spoke at the rally that took place on January 6th. And then, of course, later on, January 6th, actually, it wasn't that much later on, but slightly later on, there was a riot that took place in the Capitol with people busting in and, you know, creating all kinds of property damage. You know all this. But Mo Brooks happening to be here ever since then, he's come under attack from the left, trying to say that he was one of the people that incited a riot and all of this other stuff. And Josh Moon, in response to this, put out a summary of how Mo Brooks has changed his stories over and over again throughout the course of this new story taking place. And so here's a quick summary of it, just so you don't have to read it. He's saying that Mo Brooks is changing his story because he keeps changing who's actually to blame for the January 6th riots. So he says that Antifa, and then he says later on he was saying it was the Proud Boys, and then Josh Moon says later on he was saying, quote, those fools, talking about the people that, that broke into the, the Capitol, and then he says he blamed his constituents, and then later he's saying he blamed Trump. That's the most recent one because he's saying that in the court filings that were released just the other day, that Mo Brooks, in his legal defense, because there are people bringing lawsuits against him, Eric Swalwell being sort of the, the head of that, a representative from the state of California that's banging Chinese spies. Apparently that's, and him being on the intelligence uh, committee is not nearly as big a national security threat as Mo Brooks saying things at the Capitol and then simultaneously some idiot people that weren't even at the speech attacking the Capitol. Apparently that's a much bigger national security concern than somebody that's actually on the intelligence committee having sex with Chinese spies. Apparently that's, I'm just saying, based on his behavior, he seems to think that that is a, a bigger problem. But anyway, uh, based on this court filing where Brooks said he essentially would not have been there, he would not have been doing the speech had it not been for President Trump inviting him, and also had it not been for the White House previewing the speech, looking over it and approving it. Now, Josh Moon in intentionally misinterprets this. He intentionally sees this as Mo Brooks looking at it and saying, oh, well, actually, if anything, I said incited a riot. 
that's really Trump's fault. And the reason it's Trump's fault is because he invited me and then also he approved the speech. His people approved the speech before I gave it. That's not what Mo Brooks is saying. And I think Josh Moon knows that. I hope Josh Moon knows that. I hope he's not. I, I, honestly, I don't know. Because if you have to choose between being stupid or being evil, you should choose stupid. But you would have to be pretty darn stupid. And I don't think Josh Moon is this stupid. You would have to be pretty darn stupid to believe that this is actually the case, that when he is saying that I would not have said these things, what he's actually doing is saying, look, I didn't say anything controversial. I didn't start a riot. The things that I said were not even just something that I was coming up with off the top of my head. It wasn't spontaneous. The White House looked over this. They, they looked at it and said, yeah, that's fine. And so he's not blaming Trump for the riot. He's never blamed Trump for the riot, nor is he blaming himself and saying, my words incited a riot, but somebody else approved them. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not like the guy that, you know, caused some kind of big crash at the warehouse at work. And then is claiming, well, my manager said it was okay to do this. That's not the part that he's playing here. He's saying that neither he nor Trump incited a riot, that it was completely unconnected to the riot. And part of the thing that he is using as evidence that he said nothing controversial is that the White House staff looked over it and didn't see anything that they thought would have been illegal or problematic in any way. That's what he's saying. He is not accusing Trump of having started the riot. And so Josh Moon is intentionally misreading this, I believe. And furthermore, his whole premise that he's constantly changing his story and the story is constantly evolving is based on two very easily disprovable lies. Now, the first one is that the group that invaded the Capitol is homogenous. You have to believe that to believe Josh Moon's analysis that when Mo Brooks says, well, it was Antifa that invaded the Capitol, or it was the Proud Boys that invaded the Capitol, or it was some Trump supporters, in other words, those fools, people that you know may have supported Trump but acted in a way that they shouldn't have that invaded the Capitol. He's saying that whenever Brooks says this, he's changing his story. This is patently absurd because all of these things can be true at once. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, we know for a fact that they are not mutually exclusive. Were there Trump supporters that invaded the Capitol? Absolutely. I've never denied that. I don't think that Mo Brooks, to my knowledge, has ever denied it. And I've talked about him. I've talked about this specifically with him a number of times. And I don't know that he has ever asserted that there were not Trump supporters or not people that, that voted Republican involved in the Capitol riots. But what he is also saying is that Antifa was there stirring up the crowd. There is also evidence that the Proud Boys were involved as well. And by the way, the Proud Boys tend to lean politically right. They're not really like Republican or conservative per se, but they tend to lean right. So again, that wouldn't even be a contradiction in the sense that they could have been, they could have actually been the same person. Like you could have said a Proud Boy and Trump supporter. That's also possible. I don't know if it is or not. But the point is, these are not contradictory things. These are not things that if you say one, it must be the other true. The, the game that Josh Moon is playing here is he's basically acting like there's this World War II historian. And see, on this page in his book about World War II, he's saying that we were at war with Germany. But on this page, he says we're fighting Japan. Ha! I got him in a contradiction. No, you idiot. Both things are true. 
it, it can be true that there was Antifa, Proud Boys, and Trump supporters all in the Capitol when the riot took place. All of those things can simultaneously be true. And by the way, probably was based on recent available evidence. We actually have video footage, and I've shown it on this show before, of an Antifa member trying to smash in a window, and he actually gets hauled off by Trump supporters. I actually found recently a new video that has two people all dressed in black, clad exactly like Antifa always is. They try to smash in a door. The Trump supporters step in and actually stop them from smashing in the door. There were no Capitol Police there. And so the Trump supporters actually step in, which, by the way, does not excuse the Trump supporters that did break in and did break stuff and did steal things. I'm not trying to suggest that the every Trump supporter there was good and it was just Antifa that was bad. I'm not saying that. I said from the very beginning, this is probably at least some Trump supporters, just based on the people that were present in the Capitol that day at the time. But the point is, saying that does not mean it is exclusive. Now, maybe we do an investigation and we find out those Antifa members were really Trump supporters in disguise. I doubt that, but it's a possibility. Maybe we find out that the Proud Boys really weren't involved. I don't know. Maybe Mo Brooks is proven wrong. That is still a possibility. But my point is, him saying those things does not necessarily make it a contradiction. And Josh Moon, I think, knows this and is intentionally lying to whip people up against Mo Brooks. Now, the second easily, easily discredited lie in this is that the group that was listening to the speech that Mo Brooks gave and that Donald Trump gave are exactly the same group that attacked the Capitol and broke in. This is not only not true, it is not even possible. According to the New York Times timeline, Remember, this is the New York Times, not exactly a bastion of conservative thought. The place where the attack took place is roughly a 20-minute walk from where the speech was given. The problem with that is it's a 20-minute walk on a day where there is no traffic and there are no barricades and there are no Capitol Police out blocking certain roads and that kind of thing. But that's not what this day was. The Capitol was absolutely filled. I've been there when the Capitol was swamped, when there's a big event there. It's really hard even walking to get around and to be able to do so in a quick manner. And I've also made exactly the walk that they're talking about to the Capitol building in D.C. It can't be done when you're that crowded in 20 minutes. It's just not possible. I mean, I don't even think an Olympic sprinter could make it in that amount of time. And so what they're having to deal with now is the fact that Donald Trump's speech started just like 11-ish, 12-ish minutes before the Capitol riots actually happened and people started breaking into the Capitol. And so I'm not saying, again, that these weren't some, some of them, probably even most of them, based on the pictures, were Trump supporters and were legitimate Trump supporters. They weren't like disguised or anything. They were probably real Trump supporters. But the point is, they were not the same people at the speech. It is not possible for Mo Brooks' speech and Donald Trump's speech to have incited this riot because the people that broke in were not the same people that heard the speech. And that again goes back to this thing that Josh Moon is like, well, Mo Brooks is changing his story because here he's saying that he's blaming Trump for what happened. No, Mo Brooks asserts correctly that the people that broke into the Capitol 
and the people that listen to his speech and listen to Trump's speech, it's not the same group of people. It literally can't be unless they have the power of teleportation, and we need to know about that. And so the first lie I think that Moon is probably making because he, you know, knowing it's a lie, I genuinely think the second one, he probably just doesn't know any better. I will give him the benefit of the doubt on that. I think he's just an idiot and hasn't looked into it and doesn't want to look into it because right now the narrative says what he likes. I don't think that he actually is intentionally and maliciously saying that, you know, that that's a, a lie. And But he's lying about the first part. I don't think he's lying about the second part. That's the best way that I can sum it up here. And the thing is, we might one day find out that Mo Brooks is wrong. Like I said, we could do this investigation and find out the assertions and the the claims that Mo Brooks is making about the people that were in the Capitol, we might find out that it turns out that's wrong, but it still wouldn't be him contradicting himself and it wouldn't be Mo Brooks being dishonest because these are legitimate things that we do have evidence for that we can look back at and say, yeah, that, that it, it appears to be there's multiple parties involved here. But, but Josh Moon and the people on the left here in Alabama will take any opportunity they can to attack the guy because they are terrified of the thought of Mo Brooks as a United States Senator, which to me only further solidifies that he's the right man for the job. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today, we're going to continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, you may recall that when we left our heroes, you know, doing a little sort of uh, that thing that they do at the beginning of TV shows where they kind of reset everything, give you what happened on the last episode. So here's what's happening here in 1 Samuel. We now see that David has been chased out of the palace. Saul is pursuing him, trying to kill him. He has already killed God's priest in pursuit of him. He has already taken out the city surrounding the priesthood where they hid him and took care of him. And so Saul is on a warpath. He is bound and determined to kill David. He wants to take his life because he is terrified David will become king instead of him. And he believes that David is trying to intentionally usurp his throne out from under him. And Saul had to give up the chase for a little bit because there was a report in his shores that the Philistines were attacking Israel. And so he relented from chasing David for just a little bit. David is hiding out in a mountain range area. And so Saul finds out that that's where David is hiding. He comes back after he's dealt with the Philistine threat and now moves into these mountains where David is hiding. So he's out there looking around, and this is where we see the first time that Saul uh, runs into him. So we'll, we'll look now at 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, it was reported to him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engendi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, and went to search for David and his men in the front of the rocks of the mountain goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. 
Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Then David's men said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to hand your enemy over to you, and you shall do with him as it seems good to you. Then David got up and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. But it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had to cut off he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I would do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to reach out with my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David rebuked his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got up, left the cave, and went on his way. There's several different layers to this story, and we're going to get into the ultimate meaning of it in the next lesson that we look at where we see Saul's response. But just looking at what we have so far, I want you to notice a couple things. David refuses to lay his hand on God's chosen king, even though he doesn't get along with them, even though this is a man that is currently pursuing him to take his life, even though his life would be a lot easier and his ascension to the throne a lot easier if he just went ahead and took Saul's life. And by the way, God has already promised that he would deliver Saul into David's hand. We see that in this passage. So in other words, God gave him permission and opportunity and said, you can do with him what you want. Can you imagine... God actually openly giving you permission for something. God actually giving to you through divine revelation saying, whatever your name is, you can do this. I'm going to make it to where it is. you are able to do this. I'm going to put this directly into your hand. It's going to fall right into your lap. Do what you will. Don't you think you'd probably take that opportunity? I mean, don't you think you could sit there and rationalize in your head, well, God said it was fine. I mean, if that's not the ultimate permission, it's like, I don't know what is. And we even see in other parts of the scripture, people like Abraham, who, even though God didn't give him permission to do this, would, for example, lie about whether or not Sarah was his wife in order to protect himself. See, David has a much more legitimate reason to believe that his life is in danger than Abraham did. And he specifically had God's permission to do this thing that at least could be perceived as incorrect by some people. I mean, it is the taking of a life. But even with God's permission, and even with David legitimately having fear for his life, and God having already promised the throne to him, David says, I won't do it. doesn't matter that all those factors are in my favor. doesn't matter that my men are encouraging me to do this. I will not lay my hand on God's anointed. He is God's chosen king. If God wants to take care of him, he will, but I won't do it. Even though God gave me permission to, I still will not lay my hand on God's chosen king. David had every reason in the world, and he still chose not to raise his sword against him. That is an incredible act of mercy. 
he had Saul in the palm of his hand. And, and by the way, if he was close enough to cut Saul's robe, it means that Saul wasn't wearing it probably. Because it's, it's very hard to believe that David could have cut Saul's robe off without him noticing if he was wearing the robe at the time. And so what probably happened is when Saul goes in to relieve himself, he removes his robe and, and goes in to do what he needs to do. And then David is close enough to him that while he's doing that, his robe is sitting right there on the cave floor, hanging up in the cave somewhere, and David cuts off a piece of it there. That's how close he is. And yet he still chooses, even though he can do everything. Saul is completely vulnerable and at his mercy, and David still chooses to let him go. That shows an incredible strength of character. I mean, I don't know that I would have had that strength of character. Can you imagine God giving you permission to just take care of your mortal enemy and you saying, no, thanks, God, I'm good. That's what David just did. And here's the crazy thing, and I think that this makes it even more impressive. Even after this incredible act of mercy, even after he has shown Saul incredible and completely unjustified kindness, grace, unmerited favor towards Saul, even after that in sparing his life when he had every right to take it and every motivation to take it, David still feels bad. He still feels wrong that he has cut off a part of Saul's robe as kind of a trophy. And so we'll see what he does with that in the next time, and that's for the next lesson. But I want you to contemplate that for a second. Even after this incredible virtuous act, David still thinks, I can do more. He still thinks in terms of, what would God most want me to do? What would be the ideal for me to do? Because there's so many Christians today that they look at, what's the bare minimum I can get away with? That's really how they approach religion. And I've been guilty of it too. So I'm not casting this just on everybody else because I'm guilty of this from time to time as well. We think, well, as long as I'm showing up to church and taking the Lord's Supper and uh, I've already, you know, gone through the process of salvation, you know, I'm, I'm basically doing everything God asked me to do. Okay, but David did all of that and more already. And he still is looking for more ways to serve God, more ways to do something even more correct than he has already done to be more pleasing to his creator. That's the kind of attitude that Christians should be seeking after. That even after you've done something virtuous, and it may actually be virtuous, you know, I'm using the air fingers quote because it could be a false virtue, but it also could be the real thing, just like it was with David here too. When that happens, are we still constantly looking for how do we be more virtuous? How do we be more like God? How do we better reflect God's spirit living in us? Because it seems like right here, that's exactly what David is doing. It would have been very easy for David to walk around with his chest puffed out and being like, God must really love me. I mean, look, I had every opportunity, every motivation to do this thing. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it because that's just the kind of guy that I am. That's not what David did. David did not allow himself to be puffed up by his own pride. And there are other times, other episodes where he does, but right here, he doesn't. Right here, David is not looking at this incredible act of grace and mercy and saying, yep, I did pretty well today. He's saying, you know what? 
I probably shouldn't even have taken off his robe. You have to understand in their culture, this would have been a shameful thing. Not for David to have taken it. It would have been a shameful thing for Saul to have lost it. And so now he's gone so far above and beyond what God asked him to do. He's not only spared Saul's life. He has not only completely kept his men from doing it, because then you would even have plausible deniability. He's like, yeah, I didn't kill them, but you know, my, I told my men it was fine if they wanted to. David wouldn't do that either. But now he's even going the extra mile and going, I actually don't think I should have taken part of his robe. That humiliated the king, and that's not something I should have done. And so even when we are engaged in an act of virtue, even when we are doing the best that we can, the worst thing that we could do is think about how virtuous and good we are. Think about how good we're doing. And, and I'm not saying we should be self-loathing at all. I'm just saying that when we do something virtuous, our automatic reaction would be, I really hope that God is pleased with that. What are the ways that I can do now to do even better? How could I be even more virtuous? How could I even better reflect God's spirit living within me to the world? That's the attitude we should have because we see David adopting exactly that. You see, righteousness is not for our glory. It's our duty. It's not something that we can do so that we can put it on a shelf and tell other people how great we are. That's pride. Virtue, which comes from righteousness, wanting to be in a right relationship with God, wanting to be pleasing to Him, is not something that we should glory in. Rather, it is something that we should acknowledge is the bare minimum. That is our duty. That is what we are called to be as Christians. And the truth is, if we understand our virtue and our, our obligations to God in that manner, that is going to set us on a path that goes a lot farther in making ourselves look like followers of Jesus Christ. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.